imagine something with me? I want you to join me 2,000 years ago in a cold, dark, dank cell. I want you to join me in a moment of extreme desperation. And his head, his head leans against the stone wall of his cell. He's more weary than he can remember ever in his life. See, the atrophy of his soul mirrors the skinny listlessness of his body in the forced inertia of this closed darkness that has become his constant demented captor. His mind alone has freedom left, places to go still. Only it can move at all, and it drives him to relentless restlessness, almost a frantic overdrive inside himself, calling and recalling libraries of memories in which he's roving the hills and valleys of the countryside in motion, free to move as he needed, go where he felt called, and breathe the free air of a prophet. And last week, he thinks it was last week, his mind turned on him. And it fought tooth and claw to stay away from the confines of captivity. It wanted to range through the fantasies rather than come back and be stifled here with his body. His soul ached for release. Every slow give of his muscle tissue to the shrink of immobility goaded his spirit all the more to make permanent this break from reality. Insanity seemed far more sane behind these bars than any version of lucid thought or feeling. Without invitation or preamble, wordless panic often cascaded through his body like vibrations, making him want to scream unintelligible shrieks against the walls. So far, he didn't think, he wasn't sure, he didn't think he'd given way to mules or grunts or panic. But there were large black sections in his mind now, empty spaces that he would come out of unsure of what he had done or hadn't done. The, the longer he was here, the harder it was to tell time. More time made for more musing and more musing made for more madness until the edges, the edges of utter despair crept in to the empty places. One thing stabilized him. One thing sustained him. One action others were taking on his behalf lifted his spirits out of despair. Jesus, the Messiah, miracle worker, and cousin, was still out there. And John's disciples had gone to call on him. And that flickering hope, that flickering light in the darkness of his soul is all that kept him from 
insanity as he waited for an answer or for death. We join a story and there's so much back history and so much richness that we could go into as we spend some time together this morning. But we don't have time for it. I love all that we did before, but honestly, they robbed me of some time, you guys. I met a new couple here, Ron and Linda. I don't know where you are. I'm sorry. I told you we'd be done right at 11.15. I don't know if that's going to happen at this point. (laughs) Welcome to Impact. Matthew 11, if you have your Bible with you, please turn. It's about three quarters of the way through the book. If you've got your device, get on there. We believe in going through the word together, letting ourselves sort of emulsify in it so it will change us. That's where we join this defining moment in Jesus' story. And it is, it is a crucial pivot point. I want you to be thinking for the disciples, for Jesus, for the crowds around him. This is a moment where people thought Jesus was going this way. They thought Jesus were do, was doing these things. And there is a conscious pivot that he takes a teaching opportunity and he does a 180 on his disciples. And here's what I want you to hear today in 2019, July 4th weekend. This is an opportunity for your faith, wherever it is, to pivot. In the next 40 minutes or so, I want to dig through a story that has immense ramifications on your faith today, your discipling or discipleship and following after Jesus. This story has so much to say to us. We encounter John in the most desperate existence of his life. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. We're going to start unpacking this together. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Underline that question. And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf Here, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, yes, I'm the Messiah. Absolutely no question, I'm the Messiah. And then he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I want you to circle, highlight, underline, box that passage out, whatever you gotta do. There's such richness there. See, here's what's going on in the story. John is this, John the baptizer. He is this wild man. He is a prophet. He is unfettered, unbound. He is, he is not captured by the conventions or the, the trappings of society. He's out in the desert of all places, arid places. He's preaching a message. And, and quite honestly, some days I'm pretty sure he doesn't care whether there's anything, anyone to come hear him or not. He's going to preach that same message. He, he's called by God to call people to repentance. And he does that 
and he does an incredible job of that. And later on in this passage, Jesus is going to describe him. He, he's preparing a way for the Messiah. He's preparing a way for the Savior, his cousin, Jesus and as he does it, he does it with complete abandon. And then he comes into conflict with King Herod and he calls out the king of the Jews. And he says, what you're doing and how you are living is sin and you should repent. And ooh, all of a sudden, he's now on the political scene. All of a sudden, he is now in a spotlight that he soon discovers he maybe didn't wanna be in. He's put in prison by Herod and he's been rotting in prison. And, and he is at a point where he is beginning to question. He's, he's, he's at a point where there's some confusion. He's at a point where, where he's like, all right, Jesus, you and I are best buds, right? I believed in you and I still believe in you. I, I, I've got a lot more to preach. I've got a lot more calling people to repentance to do. My calling is not over, Jesus. I, I, I need you to know that it, it, right now I'm in prison and, and if you really are the Messiah, if you really are the Savior, if you really are my friend and my Lord, you need to get me out of here. You need to do what only you can do as a miracle worker and rescue me from this situation. And this passage blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me is the response of Jesus to John. He says, go back. Go back, disciples of John. Tell them, John, you're right to believe. You know you're right. I am the Lord. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. No doubts about that. You got it right, but I can't rescue you, brother. I love you, and I'm with you. I love you, and I'm with you, but this one isn't going to go at all like you expected. Not at all. I need you to pivot, and I need you to continue following me, continue believing in me, continue believing that I do have a call and a purpose and meaning for your life, and it's very different than what you thought it was. See, listen to me. Here's, here's what you can mine from this passage. Jesus did not come to follow us. In the Western church, we flip this, we distort this, and we mess this up all the time. Jesus came so that we would follow him. And that's a paradigm shift for a lot of us because we get really excited about the Jesus that would come and make us comfortable and the Jesus that would come and make us more secure and the Jesus that would come and give us safety and the Jesus that would come and shelter us. And we see in this passage that this idea of John's, no, no, I thought this was my calling. I thought I had years more of freedom. I thought I had years more of doing what you would call me to do. And Jesus is literally saying, John, that's not how it's gonna go down. You are gonna die. You're gonna rot there and you're gonna actually be beheaded by Herod because that story 
of courage and bravery and following me at, at all cost with complete abandon, abandon. Doing the thing that I have asked you to do, that is going to save millions as they reread your story in the Word. I'm not going to. I'm not going to work a miracle. My inactivity for you is going to cause the action of your story to spread like fire. I want to take a second and I want to rip apart. I want to shred it in front of you. This idea that we've bought into church. I've heard it. I still hear it on a regular basis. It's, it's got to be in the top 10 stupidest things that Christians say. Maybe it's the top. I'm not sure. I heard it at college and university by seminary professors. Here it is. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Do you know Jesus? Anything about just Jesus. For the disciples... To follow Jesus, his 12 disciples, was absolutely terrifying, dangerous. Anywhere else in the nation of Israel was safer than walking anywhere in proximity to Jesus' danger zone. From Genesis to Revelation, the stories of those who follow the Lord who are sincere about obeying him and taking steps after their rabbi, it's dangerous. It's the opposite of safe. That's about the one thing I can promise you if you're following Jesus, is it won't be safe. So we gotta get rid of this idea in our mind. Paul actually puts it perfectly. In uh, 2 Corinthians, he says this, are they servants of Christ? Talking about some other people. And then he says, am I out of my mind to talk like this? So right away, you see the insanity of following Jesus. He says, I, I am more than those servants. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's the archaic version of stoned, not the modern version of stoned. <laughs> Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. I think it's good to end the passage there. We don't even like being psychologically naked with each other, let alone physically naked with each other. That may be beneficial for you to try in your marriage. The nakedness part. McManus, Erwin McManus said this, and it's so powerful, I want to read it for you. He said, how many of us have become embittered with God? See, turned. We've been turned back away from God, confused in our faith because God doesn't come through the way we think he should. Is it possible? 
Is it possible that the transforming power of the church has been lost because we keep inviting people to step into comfort and safety and security of Jesus Christ? We've created a religious culture in which even though we're the most blessed society in the history of the planet, our best-selling literature still focuses on how we can be more blessed. Maybe we need to step back to the beginning of this movement. I believe that. What will you do, church? Here's my question as we enter this passage and we, we, we play with the story of Jesus. What will you do when your experiences with Jesus don't line up with your expectations of Jesus? What will you choose when the domesticated version of your faith, your following, meets the risky business? of actually following Jesus today and every day. I, I want to realize and I want to actualize this paradigm for just a second for you in quick succession. Here, it, here goes. He came to us. He came to us to characterize us, not to comfort us. He is more concerned about your character than your comfort all day long. He came to us to make us valuable, not profitable. He came to us for his significance, not to improve our self-esteem. He came to us to offer us purpose, not to be a placebo for our pain. He, he came to teach us to risk well, not to domesticate our freedom. He came to morph us into his likeness, not to make us more likable. The more your character looks like Jesus in certain contexts, the less likable you are. He came to catch our affections on fire, not to douse our desires. Hear me in this. Your desires are good things. Your passions are power. And when you get right with Jesus, he reaches inside of you through some painful experiences and he takes a hold of your bandwidth for desire and he tweaks it and he twists it back into place and he may need to put it in a wrought iron furnace and, and bang on it with a hammer, but he'll get those desires back into the right shape so that they can explode out of that bandwidth. He came to qualify us for his purposes, not to increase our net worth. Passage goes on. It's unbelievable, but it gets better. Here he, here he says, as John's disciples were leaving after this, this statement, blessed is he who does not stumble, or some passages say fall away, from me. As, John, as John's disciples are leaving to go deliver that news, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Question mark? Yeah. Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. 
This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Speaking of the Messiah. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's some pretty impressive credentials coming from the Son of God. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he what, 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 what? See, John the Baptist is a powerhouse. He's a pioneer, an entrepreneur. He is a supernatural force. This guy marched to the beat of God's drum and he didn't stop to ask questions when people scoffed or criticized, mocked or ignored. He didn't let trickery slow him down, hunger stop him, nakedness pace him, loneliness, thirst, deserts, storms, or homelessness deter him. He preached a potent message of repentance and singularly prepared a way for Jesus. Singularly. He was a force to be reckoned with, a mystic and a maverick. Listening to God's voice was his daily desire and nothing could move him from repeating the truth of the intentions of God for the heart of God. And Jesus is like, that guy, that guy's amazing. That guy is awesome. And then he turns, he gives this halftime pep talk, this, this schoolyard rally, points to John and his charisma. And then he spins on his disciples and he says to his disciples, but anyone born in the kingdom of God has greater capacity to change the world than John did. Because once infused with the Holy Spirit, now this is capacity. You can choose to activate it or you can choose to lay it right there and do absolutely nothing with it. But what he is saying is once you have me, once you are following me, once you are listening to my voice, any of you, the least of you will actually be greater than John. That's a pretty impressive charge to be giving, not just to his disciples there, but to his disciples in this room today, followers of Jesus. And then, and then he, he hits this moment. He hits this moment. I think this is where Jesus the prophet starts coming out. As he continues in verse 12, he says this, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful people lay hold of it. Box that out, highlight that, write that in the margins of your Bible, write it again and again. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Let's unpack this. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and forceful people lay hold of it. The etymology, the biblical etymology of this word force is so potent and powerful. It's this idea of leverage. It's this idea of being in motion and increasing the intensity of your motion. It's, it's actually translated in some translations as violence that you are so full of expulsive energy that it propels, it impels, it compels those around you. There's an influencing component to this, that, that the kingdom of God is in motion and it is your charge to actually join that motion, to, to actively take part, 
to say, I'm not going to sit on my laurels. I'm going to move. I'm going to be a part. One, one commentator said this, the idea is to crowd oneself into. Imagine a door, and there's a whole lot of people trying to get through that door, and you muscle your way inside that door. You're pushing for it. You're pressing for it. There's power and strength lodged in this force that Jesus is saying, and forceful people lay hold of it. The idea of crowding into it. In just a minute, this last passage that we're going to hit here, Jesus unpacks some things for us. And he actually says, John came doing one thing and I came doing another thing and you guys were so indecisive and equivocated back and forth. You didn't know you were ambiguous in every way. Nothing we did actually satisfied you. He, he, he goes into that in just a second. But in this moment, he, he's, he's describing, when he goes into that, he says, I am described as the lover of sinners. Worse than that, according to their day and age, they've labeled me the sinner's lover, which had a disgusting, gross, almost erotic connotation. You, you've labeled me the sinner's lover. Let me tell you something about the sinner. The sinner will crowd themselves into the kingdom of God. When you get with people who have been ostracized, objectified, left out in the cold, hated, marginalized, treated despicably, the tax collector, the prostitute, the harlot, the people, all, all you religious folk, all, all you church folk, the ones that you've, that you've pressed out in every way, tried to remove that, sanitize that, clean that, just, you know, make it more clinical. Those people, they'll be forceful about their entry into the kingdom of God. They want it. They want me. And once they have it, nothing will stop their active participation in it. Nothing will stop their pursuit of bringing others to the kingdom of God. They cannot be stopped because they are a force so powerful. Those are the ones I want advancing my kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here. See, here's the deal. There's only two options if you're going to follow Jesus. Risk or regret. Okay, two options. You're going to risk or you're going to regret. It's, it's either all, living all of it for his glory, which will fulfill you, and, and, and it'll, be, it'll be satisfying, or you're going to spend the duration of your following regretting and wishing you had done something different. I, I just... When I was uh, 21... I told a story when I was preaching about six, six months ago. Some of you will remember it, some of you won't. I, I told a story of me falling off a waterfall. I had my two younger brothers with me. Uh, at the time, they were eight and six. I was about 10. And my family went down to Tennessee when they were 19 and 17. Now, I, fell, I was the one who fell off the waterfall, okay? They made it across. They didn't fall. I just need you to know that as I tell the story. There's a gorge down in Tennessee, 
both sides, cliff faces, there's trails on both sides that you can walk. There's signs all along the trails that say, don't jump, okay? But there's a waterfall at the confluence, the top of that gorge. It's about 85, 90 feet tall. And my two younger brothers, the waterfall divers, they dove underneath for about an hour deep to make sure that there were not any obstructions or any protrusions or anything going down there that they could harm themselves on other than the force of hitting water at that speed. And they got up at the top. There's a recording of this. And they stood there for like 25 minutes. They were supposed to give the signal. I mean, we had our uncles literally watching the trail calling. Hey, ranger, dive, clear, cover, hide. This is my family, okay? (laughs) Can't choose your relatives. And after about 25 minutes of standing at the top, my 17-year-old brother, third born, got something to prove. He gets up on the edge. This is like 90 feet. Gives a thumbs up, and he goes over. I still get emotional when I watch that. And about three minutes after him, my 19-year-old brother did the same thing. Now, do you think I don't regret not doing that at every single family gathering we ever go to? (laughs) Comes up on a regular basis. And I'm telling you, there are times I think about going to Tennessee, finding that waterfall, and throwing myself off. Dan would. Dan will do it together. Risk or regret. That's what we're looking at here. Risk or regret. See, I hope and I pray today that the Lord wrecks your whole life in the best way possible. I, I hope that. That you reject, I want you to reject the crap this world is selling you as a good and normal life. I I want you to spurn it. I, I want you to cast out the good and normal life. I want you to pour yourself out as a living sacrifice for the purpose of God. There is no other greater experience or challenge or adventure on this rock we call earth or in eternity than to be about God's call and God's voice, his summoning and his beckoning. And and, and here's the deal. The reason some of you are so dissatisfied and so unfulfilled and so purposeless in life is that you haven't been willing to do this. You've bought the bill of goods that's bogus, that it's all about safety or it's all about security or it's all about your comfort instead of rushing the field with Jesus and saying, God, what gifts have you given me? What things can I do for the kingdom? All the unique ways that you've wired me, would you bring those back to life? I want to follow you at all costs. I'm not sure which is worse, honestly, sometimes. I'm just not. Whether whether you living your whole life chasing hopes, chasing dreams that are selfish and about you and you never getting them. I've met a lot of people in their 70s or 80s that regret 
so much of their life and they never attained or achieved whatever it was that they thought was going to satisfy them. Or maybe worse than that is that you're in this room today and you're 35 years old and you achieved all of those hopes and those dreams. You've got it all. You've got the big house. You, you, you've got the, the 16 different uh, classic cars in your garage. If, you, if that is you in this room, I'd like to get to know you. Um, you've got the bed, right? I mean, your bed's so big that if you stretch out and, and you couldn't touch your wife if you tried. So comfortable. Get a sleep number and just adjust my number a little bit. You can track your sleep. But you can't, you can track your sleep, but you can't sleep. That's what the tracker tells you. And I believe it's because deep down inside, as you lay there night after night, you know there's so much more. And I, I want to assure you, I want to get up here today and promise you there is so much more, but it's going to cost you. It takes forceful intentionality. It takes effort to follow the Savior where he goes. And some of you, some of you are like, well, you get me all stirred up, but like, what does that actually look like? What's that active following look like? I want to give you a few examples. And we'll see. Maybe it's for you. There's infinite ways that God's calling you. But I want to give you some tangibles. And maybe for you, it is to fully and finally forgive that person who sinned against you a long time ago. Maybe you need to listen and move from feeling hurt about it to actually releasing it before the throne of God and saying, God, you take it and you do what you will with it. And I'm simply responding to your voice. I want freedom. Maybe that's it. Or how about this one? How about God calling you to reconcile a broken relationship? But, but if you're sitting on your hindquarters or you're laying in that great big sleep number bed wondering if that re relationship is ever, ever going to reconcile itself, I can tell you the answer is absolutely no. You have to call somebody. You have to take action. You have to move. Or maybe you need to confess and repent. It, it, it is, it, 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 maybe it's to go home today and look at the little people that you have hurt or treated the worst in this world, that you love the most, and get on your knees when you walk through the door and look them in the eye and tell them, I am sorry. And mean it. Maybe God's calling you to admit your addiction this morning and you're terrified. You're absolutely terrified because you know the minute that you actually voice those words to somebody else, you can't go back to the way you were. You begin a process of change, which is what your soul longs for. It's what the Lord is urging you to do, but you're aware that once you do that, you can't take the words back. You've been trying to manage it. You've been trying to figure it out. You need to admit it out loud to somebody else. Or how about this one? How about, how about you start fighting for your marriage? And I mean really getting in the trenches and fighting. 
I mean throwing everything you've got behind your considerable force, behind your ability, behind your gifting to actually see your marriage flourish instead of laying in that bed waiting for Jesus to show up and sprinkle Jesus dust on your marriage. Maybe it's to start tending the hearts of your children. Maybe it's to actually become a a child psychologist of your kids because they desperately need help interpreting the overload of information they're getting every single day, but you've never spent the time to build the bridge with them so that you can actually be the one to help interpret reality for them and you see them drifting. Maybe it's to study them. Maybe it's to spend time being the kind of parent that Jesus wants you to be. How about that one? How about radical generosity? How about radical generosity? How about every time you hear about Swaziland or every time you hear about a giving initiative or every time you hear about an opportunity to sacrificially give and it stirs something in you because that's, God is actually calling you to do that? How about saying, I'm not going to go through all the bank account reasons that I can't do that. I'm actually going to write something down in faith and I'm going to go after it because I can influence and affect the kingdom of God with the things he has given me. How about that? as a call to you, a unique purpose for you. Or what about, what about serving here in the body of Christ? Maybe you're the person that's like, you don't understand. I come in, I get my coffee, and I sit my keister down right over there. And I listen, and I maybe sing. And last week, I put my hand up like this. <laughs> That's a big step for me. Maybe a radical step, maybe a call you need to take. Maybe what Jesus is asking you to do is to get out of your chair today and walk through those doors and sign up to help a a Love Week project. And it is scary for you. You might have unique giftings and talent that is necessary for that project to thrive and for the people that are participating to really dig in and make kingdom of God advance in that moment. But if you don't listen to the call, you're not going to move. Maybe it's community for you, okay? Maybe Maybe it's actually saying, as much as I kvetch about never being able to connect with people, as much as I try, uh, I think, as much as I come to church and as much as I want relationship with other people, it never happens. I hear this weekly. And you know what the common denominator is every single time? You never actually put yourself out there. Ever. You're always waiting for someone else to give you that something, to do something that that encourages you, that, that brings you into community. What if you need to go to man camp to get involved with other men to experience community and you need to be the one to move and actually go register and not just show up because it's open registration, but actually register today. Ladies in here, our women's ministry is doing a summer refresher. I talked to Kate weekly about it. It's awesome. I can't encourage you enough to be a part of that, especially if you're feeling like I just need to be involved. 
I need to be connected. I need community. I don't have it. How about this one? How about God's calling you to retire? Hmm? How about, how about today you are being stirred in a new way to say, it's time for me to be done doing what I've been doing. It's time for me to break an identity entirely wrapped up in my work. It's time for me to be done with my bank account. It's time for me to be done building my 401k. It's time for me to move into the ability to go where God has me, what he has for me, to do whatever it is that he's called me to do. How about that? Not so you can play golf. Not so you can hunt. Not so you can fish. You can, if you take me with you, you can do a little bit more of those things. <laughs> but so that you can unleash the unique, amazing call that God has given you. Jumping down because the band's gonna kick me off the stage here. The last passage, Jesus talks about the ambiguity and the equivocation, the back and forth and the wonderment. Verse 19 says this, the son of man, it's Jesus describing himself. The son of man came eating and drinking and they still said, here's a glutton and a drunkard, friends of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I hear this a lot. I hear this all the time. What am I supposed to do? What, what is the next step for me? And I just, I want to leave you with this. Nothing about following Jesus is passive. So what I can guarantee you is that passively sitting there is not your next step. Nothing about following Jesus is passive. Everything about following Jesus is active. And today, I, I, today I want to encourage you with that. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Get up, get out, and do something new and something different. And that question of, well, what is it that I should actually do? I'm going to be crazy. I'm going to say this. Pray. Pray sincerely. Pray. And then take a guess and then go. See, here's the deal. What we do as Christians a lot of times in the church is we pray and we talk and we think. And then we pray and we talk and we think. And then we call up a friend and we say, I've been praying and I've been talking and I've been thinking. And then we hang up the phone and we never actually do anything because we're scared. I am encouraging you today. I don't care what it is. I want you to pray and then I want you to guess and then I want you to go. I want you to activate. I want you to do the thing that Jesus is clearly telling us, the forcefulness, the forceful advancing of the kingdom. I don't want spectators. I don't want people sitting there watching the kingdom of God advance against the darkness and then seeing the kingdom of God push back. And you're like, oh, no, uh, you're, let's cheer on the kingdom of God. Let's, yeah, they're doing a great thing. And then there's the streaker that runs out through and you, and you laugh at the streaker. But you know what that streaker was? A sinner or tax collector that was just like, I can't help it. I got to be part of this game. And he gets in there. I need you to move off that spectator ledge and onto the field. I need you to pray. 
I need you to guess and I need you to go. And I promise you, there will not be an Independence Day like that ever in your life before. The freedom you will experience when you chase Jesus will fulfill and satisfy your soul. Thank you.